The New Testament reading can be found in the Church Bible on page 1030 at the back of the Bible. And it is Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him, in an instant, all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. <coughs> Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God, and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple, if you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. This is the word of the Lord. I'm trying to remember the last time I was here. Um, and it was ages ago. Uh, and then I remembered I was here on Wednesday evening for our Ash Wednesday <laughs> service, so it wasn't ages ago. But this is the, this, this is the first time on a Sunday morning for, uh, for quite a while. Uh, and so it's good to be uh, amongst you. During uh, Lent, we're, we're trying to swap around a bit so we get to uh, share with one another's um, uh, churches and minister to one another. So it's, uh, it's great to, uh, to be amongst you. Um, I have a confession to make, and my confession is this, that uh, whenever I get up to preach, I suffer from something called imposter syndrome. Do you know what imposter syndrome is? It's that sense that you're just not good enough or worthy enough for the task that you're called to do. And I guess at some time, most of us have experienced that. For me, it happens virtually every time I preach. Um, you know, sometimes you're preaching on holiness and you think, I'm the last person who should be preaching on holiness. Or uh, you're preaching on uh, patience. And I think, well, my family thinks I'm the last person who should be preaching on, on patience. I have to tell you this morning, I do not suffer from imposter syndrome because this morning I'm going to speak to you about temptation. And I can assure you, I am, a, I am an expert on the subject of temptation. But uh, we're going to be looking at that passage from Luke chapter 4. And if you've got the church Bible, you might like to turn to it. My version is slightly different, but it's the same, same sense. Um, and uh, we're going to, to track through this uh, very important uh, experience in Jesus' life. And uh, often when we think about um, this passage, I think that the, the temptation is to place ourselves at the center of the narrative, 
to imagine ourselves in Jesus' place, if you like, and therefore to try and mirror what Jesus does. That's, that's a habit we have with Scripture. We always try and put ourselves in the center of the story. But uh, what I want to do this morning is uh, to start each section when we look at the temptations by putting Jesus at the center of the story and then thinking about what the implication of that, what that might be for us. And not for us individually, but rather for us as the church of God at this time in this place as we seek to minister in Great Babbo. Placing Jesus at the center. So that's the first thing to think about when we think about temptation. How often we're, we're tempted to put ourselves at the center of the story rather than Jesus at the center of the story. And we want to reflect on what the temptations have to teach us about Jesus, uh, about who he is, what his ministry and mission uh, was, and what he's accomplished for us and uh, for all the world. It's what we call in, uh, uh, in theology Christology, looking at the very uh, person and nature of who Jesus is and therefore what that means for us, rather than jumping straight in and talking about our struggles with, uh, with temptation. And so we're told at the beginning of this story that Jesus has been in the uh, wilderness for 40 days, and at the end of the 40 days, he says, and, and when this was read out, I, I, I just quickly wanted to check with Tim what version he was reading. Um, you've got the NIV there. I've got, the, uh, uh, I've got God's version, the uh, N NRSV. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and it actually says this. Uh, for 40 days, he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during these days. And when they were over, he was famished. He wasn't hungry. He was famished. That's a, that's a word we use quite often, isn't it? Oh, I'm famished. And we usually mean we haven't eaten for a couple of hours, um, or even less in some, some cases. Um, but of course, we're not famished. You're famished when you haven't eaten for 40 days. We use that word starving, don't we? Glibly. You know, oh, I'm starving. No, no, if we were really starving, we'd know all about it. Jesus was famished. That's the situation he was in when he was tempted and tested. And uh, it's quite difficult for us to put ourselves in that situation because most of us, I would guess, have never been in that situation ourselves. Um, maybe one or two of you have, or you've had to go without food for a particular period of time because of an illness or something like that, and you know what it is to be really hungry. And you know how weak and vulnerable you feel when you're in that situation. That's the place that Jesus was in. He was famished. Not just hungry, he was famished. And so, at that moment, Satan comes to him and gives him his first temptation. Turn that stone into a loaf of bread. If you're God's son, turn that stone into a loaf of bread. And so Jesus is tempted at this moment, uh, during this time of preparation for the public ministry that he's to embark upon. Remember, it is the spirit that leads him out in the wilderness in order to prepare him for his ministry. At that moment of preparation comes the moment of temptation to satisfy his physical needs. And how tempting that must have been. We saw at the beginning, didn't we, the, uh, the video of the kids looking at those, at those marshmallows. I was salivating when I was watching it. I said, <laughs> I'd have eaten the one rather than waited for the two. How tempting it must have been for Jesus. He could see that stone turning to bread. 
He could visualize it. You can imagine. He probably wasn't salivating. He was probably so, his mouth was so dry, he wouldn't have been able to. That's the situation he was in. What would it matter if he turned stone into bread? What would it have mattered to perform that sign? But Jesus resists. He resists the temptation simply to pander to his physical needs and appetites at that moment. Because there was a greater purpose and thing on his mind. The thing about the temptations as we read them in, uh, in Luke's Gospel is um, they're not just temptations at this moment in Jesus' life and ministry. They are temptations that occur during his public ministry. And again and again, there's the temptation, not just for Jesus to satisfy and meet his own physical appetites and needs, but meet the physical appetites and needs and demands of other people as well. And of course, sometimes Jesus met those needs. But they were never his sole priority for others. And so we can think for a moment of that time when he fed the 5,000 with just a few scraps of bread. And that time when he met the 4,000, he fed the 4,000 with just a few scraps of bread. I think we often forget that there are actually two different stories of Jesus feeding, feeding the crowds. I, I came unstuck on that, I have to tell you, at the beginning of the second year of my theology degree uh, at Durham. Um, I was, uh, had to sit a, a Greek paper on a um, uh, uh, Saturday morning, and uh, I was also captain of the, one of the football teams, and we were trying out the, the new first years who'd arrived, and I knew, so I was in my tracksuit, I sat down, opened, opened the page, recognized the words bread, fish, crowd, and so I wrote from memory the feeding of the 5,000. And uh, uh, a week later, I went and saw my tutor, she held up this piece of paper and she said, well, this will never happen again, will it, Philip? And I said, what are you talking about? And she said it was the feeding of the 4,000, not the feeding of the 5,000. And it's quite a different story if you look at it. So anyway, I succumbed to temptation there. But Jesus, Jesus did meet people's physical needs when he, when he encountered them. He did meet people's physical needs. But it was never for him a priority. It was not the ultimate priority. And so he says when he is tempted to meet his physical needs. Man does not live by bread alone. He recognized that we are more than simply our appetites and desires. Yes, we are physical beings, but we are more than that. And so he sought to resist the temptation to satisfy his own physical needs and to satisfy the physical needs of others. He could have, he, he, Jesus never needed to leave Galilee. There were enough needs there to have stayed there the whole time meeting people's needs. We're told that people flocked to him, pressed in on him to have their physical needs met. But there were times when he needed to move away from the crowd and go to another place. He didn't simply satisfy people's physical needs. And he went further than that. He recognized that the problem with this was, if that's all you did, that's all people would be interested in. And so, for example, in the account in John's Gospel of the feeding of the five thousand, afterwards, Jesus says this. Don't labor for food which perishes, but food which gives eternal life. You see, you can satisfy your physical needs for a few hours, but you're going to get hungry again. You can drink that water that the woman of Samaria 
was asked for. But you're going to get thirsty again. Jesus had other bread to give, other water to give people that would satisfy a deeper hunger and a deeper thirst. He resisted the temptation, simply become a provider of physical needs and demands of the people because he knew that there was something deeper that people needed. There was a deeper hunger. People were famished, not for food, but for the things of God. And that's the need that he ultimately came to meet. There's a temptation for us as churches, um, and uh, the temptation is to take what should be uh, a priority for us in our ministry to our community, which is to seek to serve and meet people's needs, and make that our ultimate priority, or our main purpose as the church. In the, uh, in the 1960s, there was a big movement in the church that says, look, um, we're failing in, uh, uh, in proclaiming the, uh, the good news of Jesus. What we need to do is to, uh, to focus on people's physical needs and meet people's physical needs. And if we do that, then people will, will be more likely to come along, uh, come along to church. Uh, and it was, it, the, the phrase that was coined was that the social gospel, if we address the social needs of society, then we'll be relevant, we'll be more popular. People will take more notice of us. And don't get me wrong, just as Jesus did meet people's physical needs, so we are called in our ministry to meet people's physical needs. What we do in this place, what we do at St. Mary's, what we do at St. Paul's, seeks to address particular needs that people have. And boy, this is a time when people have got lots of needs. We know that. So there's nothing wrong with running the food bank or the CAP course or all the other good things that go on here in partnership with the, uh, the different agencies who use this building and praise God that we're releasing more resources in order to do that. There's nothing wrong with that. But that is not all we're about. In fact, I would say this. Um, uh, there is one thing that we're about that none of the other agencies who could do all those things are about because there are other bodies and groups that can feed people and give people advice about financial services and support people's uh, mental health issues and, and all these other things. But it is only the church that can point people to the one who will satisfy the deeper needs that all those people have. That spiritual hunger and need for God. Justin Welby put it like this. He said, the church is more than just another arm of the social services. So while we seek to address these things as part of our proclamation of the good news, like Jesus did, let us never be detracted, tempted to take our focus from that greater calling that we have to meet the whole person's needs. And that includes their need for a relationship with our loving God made known to us through the person of Jesus Christ. We are called to remind people that man and woman do not live by bread alone. And sometimes that's a hard thing to do. The second temptation that Jesus faced was the temptation to seek worldly authority and glory. And so the devil says to him, the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, 
To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. How tempting that must have been for Jesus, the beginning of his ministry, a ministry in which he was going to proclaim the kingdom of God and seek to point to God's glory as it was going to be revealed in him, simply to jump to the end of the story. In an instant, all the authority and power and glory could be his, rather than the ministry that lay ahead of him, the hard road that lay ahead of him. What a temptation, simply to seize that power and authority at that moment, so that people might acknowledge who he is. Very difficult for us to imagine just how tempting that must have been. Again, it's something that came to Jesus again and again in his ministry. So, for example, after the feeding of the 5,000 in, in John's gospel, we're told that the crowds came to him to make him king. They wanted to offer him that authority and power and glory of a king because he'd met their physical need. And how tempting it would have been just to succumb to that vision of what the kingdom of God is about and what his authority and power are about. But Jesus, again, resists. And so he says to Satan, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Yes, Jesus could have grasped authority and power and glory for himself at any moment, but he resisted that temptation. He knew that his authority and power came not from the world, or from the devil, but from God and serving his purposes. And so he was prepared to walk the difficult path rather than embrace the easy path of power and glory. He resisted throughout his ministry the approval of those who were in positions of power and authority. How easy it would have been to spend his time hobnobbing with those who walked the corridors of power in Jerusalem. They'd have welcomed him. At various points, it seems they tried to encourage him to embrace that path, but he resisted it. And because he resisted it, because he refused to play their games and go along with them, collude with their power and authority as a means of seeking glory, so he was opposed and rejected, and in the end, they plotted to get rid of him. This wasn't just a temptation at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Again, it was a temptation that cropped up again and again as he was challenged by those in places of power and authority. And it's a temptation that the church has faced down through the years, the temptation to embrace the ways of this world, the ways of power and authority and glory. How tempting it is. Um, well, look, if we, if we were in with these people over here, just think of the influence we could bring to bear. Just think of all the good that we could do if we walked the corridors of power. Just think of the things we could do for God if we went in that direction. I was uh, in Kenya for a month last uh, autumn. During October, I was teaching at a uh, theological college 
uh, there, training audit, where they're training ordinance, and uh, I was teaching uh, church history, and the period that I was teaching was the period uh, from about uh, the beginning of the 4th century through to the uh, 12th century. And uh, one of the things that when you, when you teach over that, I only had four weeks to do it in, so you just got crammed quite a lot in. Um, but one of the things that struck me afresh in, uh, in, in sharing this with the, with the students and exploring with them the different things that happened to the church during that people period, and mainly we're talking about the church in Europe um, uh, at that time, uh, was the way in which at various points the church comes into a position of power and authority and glory. So right at the beginning of the, um, of the 4th century, under Emperor Constantine, the church becomes the religion of the Roman Empire. You can't get a position of more influence and power than that. Uh, that's why, that, that's why um, uh, a lot of clergy and a lot of churches wear robes. It come, goes back to that, that period there. Because if, if you were part of the emperor's uh, establishment, then you had to dress like that. You had to look like that. That's where it came from. So you could be recognized. And uh, what happened was uh, that the, the church found lots of people being drawn to become mini- uh, priests in the church because it was a way of influence. It was, it was like becoming a member of the civil service. It was a way of power and influence. And uh, at various points in the church's history, uh, this situation came around where the church was in a position of real power and authority. And no doubt the, uh, the, the leaders of the church thought that they were doing God's will by what they were doing. But if you read about some of the things that were done in God's name during those periods, it's actually pretty horrific. The numbers of people who were put to death in the name of Christ. If you want to find out a bit more about that, just read about the Emperor Charlemagne and what he did in the name of Christ until a monk challenged him and said, this is not the way to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Some of the times when the church has been at its most powerful and influential uh, and glorious in human terms have been the times when it's been at its spiritually weakest, been hollowed out, lost its faithfulness to Christ and needed to be reformed and called back to what it was intended to be. And so we are called to resist walking the easier path of seeking the world's view of what is powerful, what is glorious, what is influential. And that can be hard. Because along with that comes compromise. And that's the one thing Jesus was not prepared to do. And so when we, uh, we sang earlier, yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory. That is a reminder to us of where the true path of God's glory lies. It's not in seeking the approval, the support, the power of those who walk the earthly corridors of power, but seeking to do God's will, that his will would be known in us and in our lives. So Jesus resisted the easy path of authority and glory. And finally, he resisted um, the the, the, the temptation to perform the spectacular in order to prove who he was. If you're the son of God, then chuck yourself off this temple, temple tower and the angels will come and gather you up and people will see it and know that you really are the son of God. 
And again, how tempting that must have been for Jesus to perform the miraculous, to prove who he was, to emphasize his claims, to get people to accept the mission and ministry that he'd come to proclaim. Now, of course, Jesus did perform the miraculous at various times. But they were never the end in themselves. They were always signs pointing to something greater. Pointing to the kingdom of God breaking in. A taste of what was to come when the kingdom of God is realized in all its, its fullness. They were never an end in themselves. Otherwise, why was it that so often when Jesus performed something miraculous, particularly healing miracles, he told the people that he'd healed, what did he say to them? Keep quiet about it. Don't tell other people. Actually, that was a very effective way of getting the message out there because <laughs> it looks like most of the time they did go out and tell other people uh, about it. But, but he, he didn't perform those miracles in order to draw the crowds to himself and prove who he was. He performed them as signs that God's power, God's grace, God's glory was breaking in to our world. That there was a different kingdom and a different way. And so he resisted uh, the, uh, the call on his life continually to perform the miraculous, to prove who he was. Again, in John's Gospel, chapter 12, he sa it says this, though he had done many signs before them, yet they did not believe in him. And that's the truth of the matter. You can perform, Jesus could have spent his whole life performing miracles and still people would refuse to accept who he was because of the challenge he brought to their lives. What a temptation it is to focus on the miraculous and the dramatic and the impressive in order to draw others to worship of God and to, our, to ourselves. It's tempting to do that. Again, I'm not saying that there aren't times when uh, the miraculous uh, doesn't take place amongst us. We know that it does. We do see people healed in extraordinary ways sometimes. We do see outbreakings of, uh, of these, uh, these movements from time to time. But they're usually only for a season, for a particular time, for a particular purpose in building up the church of God and uh, affirming it in its mission and ministry. They're not there all the time. They're signs pointing to something greater. When I was in, in London at um, uh, a, a parish there in East, East London, I remember getting through the post a brochure about a great mission that was taking place. I won't name the evangelist involved, um, but uh, uh, there's this brochure. Uh, and then there were billboards up around, uh, around London. And the, the billboards were empty wheelchairs and abandoned crutches. And the, site, the, the, the boards had on them, come and see people healed. Come and see miracles performed at Wembley Stadium. I've seen miracles performed at Wembley Stadium. I've seen Manchester United come back from being <laughs> a golden... <laughs> Sometimes... The temptation is there. If only we could do something really spectacular, really amazing, people would believe. Well, it didn't happen in Jesus' ministry. And I'm pretty certain it's not going to happen in ours. Was it Woody Allen who once said, I'm perfectly prepared to believe in God if he deposit a million dollars in my bank account. I doubt he would, even if that happened. And I think that's the truth of the matter because it was certainly true for Jesus. How many more signs can I give you of who I am? And yet they still refused to believe. The temptation is to try and convince people. 
almost to manipulate people into responding. But Jesus never did that. He said, this is who I am. This is why I've come. This is what God's calling me to. And so when Satan tempts him, he rejects him and says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. This is not his way. So I find myself asking this question. What was it that enabled Jesus to resist? Even at that point of his greatest weakness and need, what was it that enabled him to resist all the temptations that were put in his path? And the simple answer is this. He kept his focus throughout his ministry from the beginning to the end on the path that God had called him to. And that path was the path of the cross. Jesus knew that. He knew this was the road that he was going to have to travel, despite all the temptations that were put in his way to take a different route. The cross is where he knew he would provide for people's needs. And not just one group of people at one particular time, in one particular space, like those he fed, but all people, for all time, and in all places. That was the need that Jesus met on the cross, a need that could not be met any other way. The way of life opened up in relation with God through the forgiveness and reconciliation won upon the cross. And the cross was where the authority and power and glory of God is truly revealed. That's what Martin Luther uh, speaks about when he speaks about the cross. The hiddenness of the glory of God revealed in the cross. And that's why when Jesus spoke about the cross, he said this, now is the time for the Son of God to be glorified. If we want to see where Christ is glorified, then it is on the cross. The place where God's glory and power are truly revealed. The place even of suffering and rejection would be the place where God chose to reveal his glory. glory a, com a complete opposite to the way that the world thinks of power and glory. And St. Paul reminds us of this, doesn't he, when he says, if we want to share in Christ's glory, then we must be prepared to share in his suffering. And the cross is where the truly miraculous takes place as we see God's triumph revealed over sin and death and everything that opposes the will of God. If you want a miracle, and that's where it's to be found, on the cross, the place of God's victory. And uh, as I finish, um, I think of Tim's challenge to um, preach in four sentences, which, of course, I miserably failed to do this morning. But um, I think I can sum the whole thing up in one sentence, and it's this. Jesus rejected turning a stone into bread so that he might become for us the bread of life.